Our Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3. Zephaniah, chapter 3. Hear now the word of our God. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off, according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of our God. God. Zephaniah describes the, the same problem that Paul will in Colossians 3. Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, and 6, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Zephaniah prophesied during the days of Josiah. 
Josiah was one of the best kings in all of Israel's history. Josiah was faithful to the Lord. He led all sorts of reforms. He trusted fully in the Lord his God. We've been seeing in our evening service as we go through the book of Judges the importance of of having a king from Bethlehem, a king who will do what is right in God's eyes and who will lead us to do what is right in God's eyes. Well, can't argue for better than Josiah, right? He's said to be the best king ever in all of Jerusalem's history, better than David. And yet Zephaniah prophesies destruction. Why? Why? Reforming kings can't save you. Okay, fine. Josiah will make sure that Yahweh worship is happening and being done properly in Jerusalem. But can a mortal human king bring about righteousness? Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Josiah can't change the hearts of his people. The Lord points out that he has cut nations off. A century before, he had destroyed Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel. But did Jerusalem accept correction? No. And so God says he will cut off the proud and haughty, and he will change the speech of the peoples. He says he will, he will bring salvation even to the Gentiles, and he will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. And so Zephaniah speaks of what will happen in that day. And he he tells the daughter of Zion to sing aloud, rejoice and exult with all your heart. It's what Paul will tell us to do, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs to one another. Because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you, which is what Paul says in Colossians 2. God forgave us all our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. How could God take away the judgments against us? By sending His own Son. By sending Jesus to take the judgment upon Himself. In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwelt bodily. Only one who was truly man could pay for man's error. But only one who is truly God could bear the weight of God's wrath. So only one who is true God and true man in one person could accomplish the redemption that we needed. And when the king of Israel, the the Lord himself, Zephaniah says, when he comes in your midst, the mighty one who will save, Zephaniah says, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus rejoices over you. Jesus quiets you with His love. He exults over you with loud singing. This is what Jesus has done and is doing. And so we can respond with Psalm 46. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Behold what God has done. He has established in Jesus what He has promised. Our New Testament lesson comes from Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Hear now the word of our God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is the word of the Lord. Paul's letter to the Colossians can be summed up in four questions. Who is Christ? And what has he done? Who are you in Christ? And what does that mean for your life? Last time we, we left off in the, in the middle of verse 15 as Paul is describing the, the five imperatives of the Christian life. Uh, you see these five imperatives in verses 12 to 17. The first one in verse 12 is put on Put on the qualities of Christ, which are given then in, in verses 13 and 14. And then let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, in verse 15. The third imperative is, is short and to the point. Be thankful. The fourth imperative, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, verse 16. And the fifth imperative, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, We'll actually be exploring these five imperatives over the next few weeks uh, because what Paul does at the end of chapter 3 is apply these five imperatives to our everyday relationships in marriage as husbands and wives, as in our families as parents and children, and in, our, in the workplace as masters and slaves. The commands, the imperatives of the Christian life uh, are rooted in the indicative. I know I'm using grammar here, but actually, grammar is useful. I know you, you use it every day, but it, it can be helpful to know what you're using. Think about these, these are two different moods in the English language. The, the indicative mood that we use for making statements. And then there's the imperative mood that we use for giving commands. And the commands of the Christian life are rooted in the statements of the Christian life. The statements of who Christ is and what he has done and therefore who we are in Christ. The commands then, the imperatives, are rooted in those indicatives, in those statements of who we are in Christ. 
since we didn't look much at the last three imperatives last time, I want to take a moment to explain them up front. This third imperative in verse 15, be thankful, will be an important one that will, as we run through our applications. Because do you know how important gratitude is in life, just generally speaking? Anybody here appreciate being noticed when you did something? Anybody? Just out of curiosity. You did something and, and nobody noticed. Nobody said thank you. Hmm. Anybody here, when somebody notices, and especially when, especially when they notice the little thing that you didn't think anybody noticed, anybody notice, when somebody says, thanks, that was really helpful. Don't you, I mean... You, you all feel that way. You, all, you warm up immediately. Paul says, be thankful. Are you, are you characterized by gratitude? Are you thankful, obviously, first to God that he has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son? Because if you, if you see God for who he is and you see your own sin for what it is, then you will marvel at the kindness and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Part of it is, as long as, as, long as we think that, eh, I'm pretty okay, then I will tend to be an ungrateful person. As long as you think, I deserve better, then you t- won't be all that grateful, you won't tend to notice the other things that people do for you. But Paul says, be thankful. Now, part of the reason why this imperative is so short is because it kind of runs through the two that follow as well. Indeed, you could say that this gratitude is what's driving these last two imperatives, both of which mention thankfulness. Since the word of Christ has renewed you into the image of Christ, let the word of Christ, Paul says, dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, how does the word of Christ dwell in us? If you think about that, what does it even mean for the word of Christ to dwell in you? I mean, you can take an example from uh, whether, okay, you know, as a Dodger fan, you know, I know how the word of of Vin Scully dwells in me. I, I mean, he died this summer, and boy, all the memories it brought back of listening to his voice. But if the word of Vin Scully dwells in me, <laughs> how much more should the word of Christ? dwell in me and in you. That, because in one sense, did, did Vin Scully use any words that no other human has ever used? No, but there's something about Vin Scully that communicated in a powerful way. How much more with God, whose voice is the voice that th- when he spoke, he made all things. For his word to dwell in you Certainly, we, we, we talk. We, we have we have our catechism quiz every Sunday morning. Actually, this is a great time. Beginning, we're we're just starting it back up again. I really strongly encourage you to participate, because 
what are we doing in the catechism quiz? With the, the catechism, we do, we do a two-year survey where we go through the sort of running through the, you know, memorizing the shorter catechism and memorizing the scriptures that teach the things the catechism is talking about. It's a great way to get the content into your head. Now, I'll be the first to say there are plenty of people out there who have memorized the catechism and the word of Christ did not dwell in them richly. So people can do Bible memorization and it doesn't, it doesn't mean the word of Christ dwells in them richly. What is it? But I will also say if you're not doing anything in the area of memorizing scripture, memorizing the content of what God says, getting it deeply into you, then it's going to be kind of hard for the word of Christ to dwell in you richly because it's something, what is it that matters to us? Whose word are we listening to? What, are, what is the voice that shapes our lives? The result of, of Christ's word dwelling richly in us means that the, the gospel reshapes us, that we are being re, remade after the image of Christ. Paul is, is not saying, let the word of Christ have a few minutes of your time each day. He's saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you, live in you, abide in you. And so, yeah, there's got to be some way of getting it there. Now, some people find it really helpful to spend the first 15, 20 minutes of the day in the word. Other people find it really helpful to put put you know, have a Bible have your a Bible on, on uh, Bible on tape. I know nobody has tape anymore, but audiobooks, uh, you know, audiobooks. If you're driving to work or you know, whatever 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 your commute may be, letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly means getting the Word. Certainly, there has to be some way of the Word getting in you. I mean, part of the reason it's worth, it's worth remembering that when Paul wrote this. Pretty much nobody had a copy of Scripture at home. So they couldn't sit and read their Bibles every day. They didn't have Bibles. How did they get the Word of Christ into them? They had to listen carefully when they were at church. It's part of the reason why they had services every day when they could. <laughs> because that's where the Scripture was. And so they would go to hear the Word and meditate on the Word and catch and is what you oftentimes see, see the, the, the early preachers doing is people will get, they want to get, okay, what's, what's the main point here? Okay, I want to get that word in my head and my heart, and that's what I'm going to hang on to. So that's where how, do you, how you do it isn't the most important part. That you do it is the important part. And that's where, and this partly where as we go through our discussion about husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves, how does the word of Christ dwell in us richly in our daily relationships? Because when Paul says, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, you, you may have noticed, he's not talking about the worship service here. He's talking about daily life. So this is not a passage that says, oh, this is, this is what, you know, sort of what you should sing in church. No, this is what you should be singing every day. This is what you do in your homes. This is what you do in your daily life. Uh, true Christian piety is rooted in the word of God. So we should sing God's word to each other. We can do this through singing psalms or other biblical passages, singing paraphrases and summaries of biblical teaching. That's, but 
it's not just about doing it at church. In fact, that's the exact opposite of what Paul's talking about. Because if you just do it at church and leave it there, then it's not permeating your life. It's where this should become the way that you live your life. And now you might, you might wait a second, Pastor. Are you saying that life should be like a musical where everybody's just singing to each other all day long? No, I'm not, I'm not saying that. Paul is. And Paul is an apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he puts this as one of the basic imperatives of the Christian life. Why are we so feeble in our Christian walk? Well, how much are we singing to each other throughout the week? Now, in fairness, singing in the ancient world probably sounded a little bit more like chanting. We're not talking about sort of like operatic singers or, you know, pop stars or anything. We're just... But it's... It's the way that the Word of God sort of translates into our hearts and lives so that your knowledge of the Scriptures overflow. I mean, think about Mary's song in the Gospel of Luke. Mary's song in the Gospel of Luke weaves together phrases from six different books of the Old Testament. It's quite likely that Mary had never had a chance to read a book of the Bible because she back in those days they didn't have bibles in every home so odds are she had only ever heard in the, 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 the scriptures being taught in the synagogue heard the scriptures being read and sung in the temple that's where she would have learned all this and yet the word of christ dwelt in her richly so that when she sings her song it, all of it's it, it just it's it's woven together in her song because that's the way she learned the word. So you don't have to have a good voice. God doesn't care how it sounds. But he delights to hear us sing to one another. And as we do, the word of Christ continually reshapes us into his image. And this is where Paul's final imperative, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And again, gratitude, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything in life should revolve around him. When you speak, it is in his name. When you act, it is for his glory. And, but this is where, this is not a, 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 in the least bit, a sort of guilt-based mo- motivation. It's a gratitude-based motivation, giving thanks to God the Father through Him because you have died with Christ, you have been raised with Christ to the right hand of the Father. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So because of who you are in Christ, put on the things of Christ. And then in spite of the fact that every translation puts this big paragraph break in a new heading, and Paul just continues the theme. And applies it to marriage, family, and business relationships. What does it look like to live this way? Well, since you've been raised with Christ, love your wife. Since you've been raised with Christ, submit to your husband. Think about that same old fight that you have with your spouse all the time. One of you thinks that every dish should go in the dishwasher right away. The other one thinks it's no big deal. It might seem like a trivial matter. Okay, in in one sense it is. But how do you show compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience? If you are not showing kindness in trivial matters, 
then you're not showing kindness. If you do not love in the little things, uh, it's not love. When Paul says for wives to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord, he's saying that the wife needs to show kindness and humility in her relationship with her husband. When Paul says that husbands must love your wives and do not be harsh with them, he is saying that husbands need to show kindness and humility to their wives. In in a Christian marriage, the, the husband loves his wife so thoroughly with such meekness and patience that her submission is a joy to her. In a Christian marriage, the wife submits to her husband so completely with such compassion and kindness that his love also is a joy to him. But of course, there's also verse 13. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So in a Christian marriage, we also have to deal openly and honestly with sin. When I fail to love my wife, I need to repent. When she fails to submit to me, I need to forgive. And if I hold it against her, well, that's the very harshness that Paul forbids in verse 19. So, so let's just walk through chapter 3 using the lens of marriage, because quite frankly, this is what Paul's doing. When I first encountered this passage in, in, in seminary, I, I was like, how, how would you preach on marriage from Colossians 3? I, I've heard lots of sermons on marriage from Ephesians 5, but whoever preaches from Colossians 3? There's only two verses. What would you say? And then I realized, well, the Colossians would have understood Paul just fine, because they would have seen, oh, he's saying all of chapter 3 applies to marriage. All of chapter 3 applies to parenting. All of chapter 3 applies to your business relations. Verses 18 and 19 here are simply one extension, one application of the rest of the chapter. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It's just worth noting that that this word here can be translated submit yourself or be submissive. The, The point being that Paul is saying this is what the wife is supposed to do. There's nothing here that remotely suggests husbands make your wives submit. No, it's that wives, you are to submit to your own husband as is fitting to in the Lord. And that's where it's worth remembering remember that phrase, as is fitting in the Lord. It, it's not because your husband is such a wonderful guy. It's not because he deserves it. You know very well that sometimes your husband does not deserve anything from you. The reason why you submit is not because he deserves it, but because our Lord Jesus Christ deserves it. It is because you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God that you are to set your heart and mind on things above and put to death the things that belong to the flesh, that old way of life. And out of your gratitude toward God, you submit to your husband in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, husbands, in yourselves, you don't deserve your wife's submission. And you have no right to demand it of her. Paul could have discussed marriage as a creation ordinance. He could have said, ah, God has so ordered things that wives must submit to their husbands because God has placed them over you. That's not what he says here. Paul points us to Christ and how our union with Christ should affect our marriages. Colossians 3 is a sermon about how our union with Christ transforms us in our relationships with others. 
The selfish practices that once characterized us are to be put to death, not simply because they hurt other people, but also because they are fundamentally inconsistent with who we are in Christ. The husband cannot demand that his wife submit because that's the very harshness and bitterness that Paul forbids in verse 19. Uh, The word translated harsh there can can either mean harsh or bitter. And if you think about bitterness, what does does bitterness look like? You, you You probably know somebody who's bitter and you can see that bitterness poisoning everything else that they do. Somebody who's always dissatisfied, pestering you about some trivial issue. Somebody who's always harping on your weaknesses. Somebody who knows how to get your goat when you're down. These harsh, bitter people have one thing in common. They're, they're trying to control people. They're trying to sort of get others to submit to their agenda. And when they fail, they hold a grudge. And their hearts become hard and alienated toward you or others. Well, doesn't this same attitude creep into your heart toward your wife? Don't you find yourself constantly tempted to just sort of seek your own way? It's like, hey, I'm the husband here. Isn't she supposed to submit to me? Anyway, and isn't it tempting sometimes to think, oh, well, but Paul says. Paul's saying, no, no, that's, that's not your job. It's not your job to tell your wife to submit. Since you have been raised with Christ, love your wife. Since you have died with Christ and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, your desire to have your own way all the time is nothing but the very greed, anger, and bitterness that Paul commands you to put to death. All those petty little disagreements, what's, what's going on there? I like how one author puts it. I was arguing about the merits of a a glass by the sink. But for my wife, it wasn't about the glass. It wasn't about the dishes by the sink. It was about consideration, about the pervasive sense that she was married to someone who did not respect or appreciate her. And if I didn't respect or appreciate her, then I didn't love her in a manner that felt trustworthy. She couldn't count on the adult who had promised to love her forever because None of this dish-by-the-sink business felt anything like being loved. I now understand that when I left that glass there, it felt to her as if I had just said, Hey, I don't respect you or value your thoughts and opinions. Not taking four seconds to put my glass in the dishwasher is more important to me than you are. Suddenly, this moment is no longer about something as meaningless as a dirty glass. Now, this moment is about a meaningful act of love and sacrifice. You see, when we talk about headship and submission, it's, it's really not about who makes the decisions. It's about spiritual leadership and reflecting Christ's love for his bride. It shouldn't surprise us. It's, it's exactly what Paul's saying here. You are not commanded to make your wife submit to you. You are commanded to make it easy for her to submit to you by loving her. Now, granted, this is one of the most difficult commands in Scripture. I mean, think back to Matthew 19 when Jesus' disciples heard his teaching on the permanence of marriage and the sinfulness of divorce. They're like, whoa, if this is the case between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. That was just when Jesus said you have to live together for your whole life. Now Paul ups the ante. Not only do you have to live with her for the rest of your life, you have to love her for the rest of your life. 
Now, is there anything in your wife that could sustain your love for her in those times when she is being flatly unlovable? In those times when she's being unreasonable, selfish, and insensitive? Paul says the reason why you are going to love your wife in those times is because Christ is your life. Verse 4. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has died for our sins, that he has been raised from the dead so that we might have life and has ascended to the Father so that we might receive the Holy Spirit. And now in Colossians, Paul tells you that you who have put your hope and trust in Jesus, you also have died. You also have been raised. You also, your, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That is the reality for every believer in Jesus Christ. Maybe we don't understand it very well. Maybe we don't feel it all the time. But that's just the reality. That's just what is the case. You are no longer the old, selfish, arrogant, lying, greedy, angry, lustful, inconsiderate, impatient, unkind sinner that you used to be. He died. And your life is now hidden with Christ. Therefore, Paul says in verse 5, put to death whatever belonged to that old self. And in verse 8, he says, get rid of all such things as these. That's not you anymore. So don't live like it is. If you think about it, every time you sin, you're denying who you are. Every time you let sin master you, you are denying the master who bought you. In Christ, you have put on the new self. And if you have been united to Christ and his life has become yours, the reason why you love your wife, the reason why you submit to your husband, is because of your gratitude to God for the great salvation which is yours in Jesus. You have the promise that when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. That is the foundation and motivation for your love. That, that gratitude, jo that joy welling up in your heart is to overflow in everything else you, you do. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And then Paul says, what are the, what are the, what are the first things he says to do in the name of the Lord Jesus? Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. It's the first thing Paul thought of when he thought about what does it mean to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, so what does it mean to love your wife? Well, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, when we think about compassion, humility, meekness, patience, do you hear those as passive attributes? Does that sound like, oh, that's a passive person who's all... No. I mean, my, my father always thought of them that way until after my mom divorced him. <laughs> then he began to learn. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience must be active. You cannot wait for her to tell you what is wrong. You must find out. You must 
take the initiative to to learn, to to study, to try to understand what is it that makes her tick. Because very often, very often, none of us really know fully our own selves. So if you ask somebody uh, just a general question, oh, he said, what makes you tick? (laughs) You're not going to, they can try. They're not going to get there. That's where building that trust of being a that trustworthy person that they can say something to you and you won't fly off the handle. That you can, it doesn't, that, that's when you've hurt her, you must take the lead and repent. My father, after he realized how far short he had fallen, he, 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 had, he, he realized he, he had never known how to communicate with her and, and worse, he never realized that he was failing to communicate. You see, my parents were the marriage counselors in my church. When people have marriage trouble, they came to my parents because my parents were the ones who had it all together. And my mom would sit there and listen to my dad talking about marriage. And, be, and she was like, wow, I wish he'd do that. He never realized he wasn't. That's, he never, he never realized she was wilting before his very eyes. Your kindness needs to open those unlocked, those, those locked doors in her heart and gently wipe away her tears. Your compassion must reach into your wife's heart to heal her loneliness and fear. Your humility must bow the knee first. And seek to honor her and exalt her, even as Christ has done for us, his bride. It's, it's not enough to give your life to her. But following the example of our Lord Jesus, you must give your life for her. Sacrificing yourself, your desires, your comfortability for your bride. In this way, you show forth the love of Christ for his church in a way that no sermon can equal. No other picture can compare to. Your love for her demonstrates the great and profound mystery of the union of Christ with his bride as you tenderly nourish and sustain her, showering upon her the grace and love which God has showered on you. And as you give yourself to her, showing, allowing your hopes, your desires, your life to merge with hers until they are truly united as you are with Christ, then you will find the strength to bear with her even when she's being unreasonable and the ability to be patient even when she's being a grouch. Because all this is love. Paul says in verse 14, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And it's this love that... That Paul calls you to bestow upon your wife, not because she deserves it, but because Christ deserves it. If you ever get to the point where you, you give your spouse what he or she deserves, you, you turn that person into an idol, you're expecting them to be perfect. Marriage is not about getting what you deserve. Marriage is about giving something that is undeserved. Marriage is about grace. It's about portraying the love of God for his people. How do you show love for your wife? 
give yourself to her and for her. And at every moment, be kind, gentle, patient, humble, forgiving. Not because you're such a great guy, but because of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Without all these things, you could, you could provide everything in the world for her. But without these qualities, you're not loving her. This is your greatest task. This is your highest calling before God. Because Jesus has given us this picture as the picture of his own relationship to his people. God has given you the privilege and honor of reflecting his rule and stewardship in your relationship with this woman. Your love for your wife demonstrates to the world that Jesus has united a people to himself. Your gentleness with her shows to this congregation the tender care with which our Lord sustain us. Your patience with her models for your children God's inimitable forbearance with his people. And that's why if you take any other example beside Christ, you'll miserably fail at marriage. If you look to any other for strength and wisdom, you will become weak and foolish. But if you rely upon the one who gave himself up for his church to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle. Okay, fine, I finally brought in the Ephesians. But if you trust in him, first and foremost for your salvation, but also for the grace to love your wife in the same way that he loves you, then when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in in glory. If someone asked me, how does Christ love the church? Could I point to you? Could I say, look how he loves his wife? Of course, course, wives, don't, don't start elbowing your husband quite yet. Because if someone asked me, how does the church submit to Christ? Could I point to you? Look at how she submits to her husband. When you reach that point, you, when I was first preparing this sermon on this passage 25 years ago or so, I realized the disciples' response to Jesus makes a lot of sense. If this is a situation between a husband and wife, you've got to be nuts to get married. Without the cross, we got nothing. You have no hope of ever loving your wife if you do not fix your heart and mind upon the grace of God found in Jesus Christ alone. It's why Jesus is calling you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And yeah, that was the point in the first time I preached it when I said, not that your wife is your cross. And then there was this lovely older couple. They were were well into their 80s. They had been married for 60 years. And afterwards, they came up to me and... The old pastor looked at me kindly and said, Young man, that was a very nice sermon. One problem. You said that my wife is not my cross. Sometimes she is. And sometimes I am hers. And she was standing right next to him, and she smiled. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes, sometimes she is your cross. And sometimes you are hers. But you died with Christ. And you don't merely follow him to the grave. 
You follow him also to the resurrection where you were raised with Christ. Your life is now hidden with him at the right hand of the Father. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Love your wife and give yourself for her as Christ has given himself for you. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, have mercy on us. Have mercy because we are not what we should be. And we fall short of loving the way you have loved us. Have mercy and forgive us. Have mercy and strengthen us and help us to hold fast to the word of life. That the word of Christ might dwell in us richly as we walk together as your people. That we might love the way you have loved. That we might show forth the picture of, of Christ and his bride before the watching world. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.